From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. There is no doubt we face a profound economic challenge. We now need stability and unity. I pledge that I will serve you with integrity and humility. The most important objective for our country right now is stability. Governments cannot eliminate volatility in markets. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the show today. We have a a smorgasbord, a platter of Bloomberg experts on the show today. We're going to talk about strikes. We're going to talk about the latest on wind power. We're going to talk about a new call about tax avoidance. And we're going to talk about the Bloomberg Breakfast Index. But first, Ewan, this being Bloomberg, we can't not mention the Bank of England today. Stephen, I would like to have a small rant. Oh, just a small one. That's a relief. Yes. It's about the coverage of interest rates in the media, the mainstream media. I guess that's us Us. and people like us. It is almost always portrayed as a really bad thing, a terrible thing. Interest rates are going up. It's going to cause pain for households, pain for families. And of course, it does cause pain for people with mortgages and people have big mortgages. And often when interest rates go up, it means a large increase in people's mortgages. So it can be very painful for some people. But most people don't have mortgages. And a lot of people, millions of people, particularly older people, rely on their savings. And for 10 years, they have had zero return on their savings. And suddenly, interest rates are going up. And that is a very positive thing for them. And uh, funnily enough, a little survey from the Bank of England uh, is published today, which is backing up my rant. Uh, They found that just 30% of Brits say they would personally benefit from interest rates going down. That is about the same proportion, 27% who would benefit from them going up. So actually, the the proportions are pretty finely balanced. So I do think we need to be a little bit careful when we talk about the horrors of rising interest rates. True. I think the other side of this, of course, is that for those people that it is going up for, it's quite a lot. The Bank of England saying the typical payment is going to increase by up to £250, um, which could cause financial difficulties, the Bank of England says, for 220 households. So there's, you know, as, as always, it's comp- a more complex story than perhaps on first sight. 220,000 households. 220,000 households, yes. Um, yeah. Yes, I think for those that are affected, it is it is very serious. But the numbers affected actually, I think, are quite are quite small. Okay. Point duly noted. Rant over. <laughs> Ewan Potts, thank you very much. Let's turn though to the latest strikes. Of course, this has been a week where we've seen strikes already in the railway sector and from postal workers. Today, it is nurses beginning their historic round of strikes. Britain facing the prospect of worsening industrial unrest uh, extending into next year. Yeah, the Royal College of Nursing says that as many as 100,000 staff are taking part in today's walkouts across England, Wales and Northern Ireland in protest over a below-inflation pay offer. More strikes planned for December 20th next week. Well, let's get the thoughts of our UK business editor, Julian Harris. Julian, thanks for joining us in the studio today. Where does all this leave patients? What's the effect been on the NHS? 
Well, we're going to see how that plays out. This is, um, as you said, the first of two nurses' strikes today and then again on Tuesday next week. And this is pretty unprecedented. We've had nurses' strikes before, but they've tended to be quite isolated. This is the first one where we've, we've had such uh, a wide range across its England, Wales and Northern Ireland as well. I think what, what's going to happen, we've already had a row between NHS bosses and the nursing unions over how this could affect patients. So nurses have said that they are are covering uh, kind of very crucial and emergency procedures. Um, some NHS bosses have said, well, actually, some chemotherapy has already had to be postponed. And uh, I mean, I think the, the kind of horrible truth is, is through nurses' strikes and the ambulance workers as well, which we've also got coming up, we're going to have cases where uh, people are suffering and that that is put down to the strike. It might then be debatable whether it was because of the strike or not, because of course the NHS has not been in a, in a great place in general. But but that debate certainly is, is, is going to get heightened and, and more emotive as well. So we have two dates, one of which is today for nurses' strikes. Could there be more next year? I think so, yeah, simply because the there is such a big gap between where the nurses' union currently is and where the government is. The government is really sticking to its line that it's had an independent recommendation for pay increase, that it previously increased nurses' pay when, when other workers didn't get it, um, and that that's that, and that they're refusing to budge. And the nurses are saying, well, well, you have to come and talk to us about pay. And if you don't, there are reports this morning that then they're just going to announce fresh dates next week into the new year. And we've been talking to some union reps um, on the picket lines this morning, and they've repeated that to us and said they, they expect there to be more to come. Be interesting to see how this plays out in the court of public opinion. I saw the survey earlier this week that showed that nurses have more support than any other group uh, for their strike. And I wonder how, when people start to see things being cancelled in the NHS, if, if that support will will start to change a little looking more widely who, who else is on is on strike at the moment uh, this could take some time to go through this list <laughs> yeah this this is going to be a list <laughs> we got, we've got i mean we are we are in a re, really in the midst of it now so this this is this is the worst part we should say there's also royal mail today so lots of packages won't be arriving in time for Christmas and that's had a knock-on effect on, on other careers as well. Um, and then the train strikes are back on tomorrow, which of course affects passengers and Saturday as well. Um, and also some freight services potentially. We've got bus drivers. Um, some Eurostar ones were, were, have been suspended, so hopefully that gets resolved, that that's good. Uh, we've also got passport control and then baggage handlers at Heathrow have just announced um, that they're going to go ahead with their strikes and have have new ones as well so it's quite wide-ranging in terms of um, public support it will be interesting we've seen with train drivers that their their support has fallen in the last couple of months um, but um, and I think this is important train drivers in general have far less sympathy among the public than nurses do and there has been very much this embedded view across society for a long time that nurses are um, underpaid and underappreciated so it's 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 going to become a very fiery issue as I say for certain um, but I, I wouldn't quite bet on on public opinion um, shifting radically what's been the effect of all of this on on businesses and on the city it's funny because of course post covid um business a lot of businesses are far more relaxed um about the effect of certainly transport strikes 
Um, so we, we've had uh, reports showing that numbers in the city, people coming to work, is very low. Um, there are estimates about one in five desks being filled in the city, whereas just before all this happened, um, numbers had got really a lot higher um, in a post-COVID sense. And we were, we were seeing lots and lots more people coming back to the office in the middle of the week. But that's really plummeted this week. But those businesses, and I th- I'm sure the workers as well, many of them just don't care. They can still work from home and it's all fine where it's really being felt is the hospitality and and retail businesses in in town centers uh, where footfall in bars pubs restaurants and shops is heavily heavily down um, and they're really taking a hit yeah rotten time of year if that's to be happening uh, for the hospitality trade thanks so much for joining us that is our uk business editor and uh, strikes czar julian harris now, if you're a regular listener to the podcast, you'll know we enjoy or rather revel in talking a lot about the cost of living crisis and the various details of it. Our next guest is bringing home the bacon but on this subject. Katie Linsell is our UK retail reporter. Um, Katie, you have been writing up the latest version of the Bloomberg Breakfast Index. Tell us more about the idea behind this and exactly what it is. Hi, good morning. Yeah, so we're looking at basically the cost of all the key ingredients that go into the English breakfast, the sort of full fry up, and using that as a way to look each month at how the cost of food and drinks has increased. Um, So we use ONS data to look at that and the CPI data that we get out every month. And um, in this case, we've seen that the price of the English breakfast has actually increased by more than the general ONS figure for food and drinks. Um, So it was a 16.4% increase um, for the wider ONS figure. And then we saw that this precise basket of goods actually increased more than 21% year on year. Um, So, yeah, it is a kind of stark image for the consumer of how, how prices are rising on their breakfast table. And Katie, talk us through some of the components of your breakfast index. What has gone up by the uh, the, the most uh, shocking percentages over the past uh, year? Yeah, so it's really the sort of staples, the, the basic goods that a lot of people are going to be buying. And I think that's why we're seeing this basket increase so much more than, than the uh, broader measure. So milk is the biggest increase. That's um, almost 50% up year on year. Um, butter is 30%, so that's the next biggest riser. And then eggs. Uh, and of course, we have seen with eggs that, you know, they've hit the hit the, the headlines a lot um, over the past month or so because um, many supermarkets had to sort of ration buying of eggs. Um, we had um, bird flu, a new outbreak of bird flu, and that has meant that uh, there's more and more culling of, of chickens and so less eggs available. Um, but yes, it's it's those basics that are really rising the most. Uh, Katie, what in terms of effects of this? I mean, it's it's a very good illustration of how much prices have gone up in the UK. But what other changes are we seeing more broadly in the UK as a result of the increased cost of these basics? So people are really shopping around. Um, they're also going when they go to supermarkets. They're also buying more sort of own label goods. So rather than buying sort of branded milk or branded bread. Uh, they'll be buying their supermarket's own brand, which tends to be a bit cheaper. Uh, and then that also focuses their mind on, you know, am I going to stick with this supermarket that I've been going to for, for months or years? Or am I going to try out some of the cheaper options? So we've seen more and more shoppers go to the German discounters, Aldi and Lidl. They've really been major winners through this environment. Um, both have re- gained market share 
Um, in the case of Aldi, it actually now sits as the fourth biggest UK supermarket. So it knocked Morrison's off that spot in September. So, yeah, a lot, a lot of movement by shoppers in reaction to this. Katie, thank you so much for joining us today. That's Katie Linsel, our UK retail reporter and compiler of the Bloomberg Breakfast Index. As Katie says, a lot of the staples are going up in price. Uh, interesting that eggs and milk, some of the worst affected butter uh, as well. But do check that out on the Bloomberg Terminal and the Bloomberg website. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, is the tax system allowing people to use their pension pots to avoid inheritance tax? That is the finding of a new report today from the Institute for Fiscal Studies. The IFS wants the government to change the law to end what it calls a bizarre situation. Bloomberg's finance reporter Tom Metcalf joins us now for more. Uh, Tom, to quote the OMC song, how bizarre. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. It was one of those report you, you read and you start to, to lean forward a bit more. It's um, certainly an arrangement I wasn't aware of. Uh, and, and I suspect it's sort of definitely still on the margins. And actually, the IFS are getting this report out there in, in a bid to change it. So uh, this sort of loophole may not be around for long. But effectively, if you have enough money that you don't need to use your pension, what they're saying is some very wealthy people are effectively funding their retirement through other assets. And then when they die, as long as they do that before 75, which is a little bit of a catch with this problem, um, uh, with this system even, uh, then they get to hand that off without inheritance tax. It's quite a clever wheeze, isn't it? I was interested to read this story because I, I hadn't heard of this and not being particularly rich, I haven't been planning my, uh, you know, passing on huge amounts, huge, huge piles of cash. How many people do we th- do we think are doing this? Is, is how how widespread do we think it is? Yeah. So the report um, says right now there's probably not huge amounts of money moving through the system. But but what it says is, uh, you know, if this is allowed to continue, what they expect is something like about two billion pounds of tax a year um, would be sort of being missed by the uh, by the HMRC. So what they're saying is, you know. Why don't you tax this and use that money to reduce taxes elsewhere and or, um, you know, help the sort of public spending burden or at least just align it so, you know, kind of everyone can benefit. Is is there an advantage to keeping the system the way it is? Is there a reason that the system is developed, do we know? I think it's just you know classic tax system, right? You know, unintended consequences. Uh, so no, I don't think that it was ever intended to sort of be a uh, sort of, as you say, a, quite well put, a wheeze to get get around it. But that's how sort of some sharp-eyed wealth managers are starting to use it. Put uh, two billion pounds in a bit of a bit of context for, for us. I mean, that's not that's hardly hardly a game-changing amount of money, is it for, for the government? But it, that would be it would be 
useful perhaps in removing some taxes or, or increasing some spending. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it's sort of in the context of all inheritance tax, that's a pretty big chunk. So sort of looking at kind of significant percentage of that. Um, but yes, obviously, when you've got, uh, you know, a government deeply in debt, trying to sort of find ways to, to, to manage, you know, hundreds of millions of uh, hundreds of billions, sorry, pounds of spend every year, probably won't massively change the dial. But it's one of those things where it's an easy fix. And um, as I say, it kind of just benefits the, the wealthy. So uh, I suspect you'll see these reforms come through pretty quickly. Yeah, it's interesting because, of course, we've had so much focus politically on the non-DOM status and uh, how Labour is using that as a stick to beat the government with. Keir Starmer brought it up again in Prime Minister's questions yesterday. Um, you can imagine this is an issue that will very quickly become political as well. Yeah, no, no, exactly. It's, uh, it's one of those things where perhaps the real life impact is certainly for now you know, pretty minimal, but it definitely will capture people's minds. And I was just talking to a few colleagues and, you know, that's, you know, the death tax, as some people call it, really does sort of uh, get people on both sides of the political aisle uh, really engaged. Um, you know, some people will say, hey, we're getting taxed so many times, you know, all of this has been taxed once and, and now the government are looking for a, or, you know, perhaps going to look at a way of, of shutting off this loophole, which is, uh, you know, appealing to some at least. Tom, thanks so much. That's uh, Tom Metcalf, our finance reporter, joining us in the studio. We're now several days into the cold snap that's driven up demand for power here in the UK. Spot prices hit that record high on Monday. Part of the problem is known is what's known as a dunkelflout, uh, which is not a word I have to say I was familiar with until this week. Goodness. Well, our renewable energy reporter, Will Mathis, is here to explain, hopefully. Will, what is this? So, uh, dunkelflauter is a German... Term Thank for, you for correcting my pronunciation. The kind of <laughs> weather we're having this week, which is cold and still for a number of days. So it's not just like, you know, a couple hours when the wind's not blowing, but it's, you know, a days long period. And this, this whole week, basically, you know, it's been freezing cold and the wind has been really not there, which is nice when you're walking down the street and you don't get really cold wind in your face, but it's terrible for uh, power production. So we're really relying mostly on gas here in the UK for for our electricity. Because I remember discussing this back in the heady days of summer when the idea of freezing weather was seemed a very long way off. And the national grid, you know, it's a key job of theirs is to plan for these kind of things, isn't it? They, they said they were planning for when there's a really cold snap and the wind doesn't blow. And and that is exactly this week, isn't it? I think we probably didn't think it was going to happen at the beginning of December because it's not normally that cold at this time of year. But so far the lights haven't gone off, have they? Um, What have the grid been doing to to make sure that doesn't happen? And can we give them a little sort of pat on the back for doing a good job? Yeah, I mean, the the lights haven't gone off. And, you know, this is the worst case weather scenario but to get to a a blackout kind of scenario you'd have to pair the worst case weather scenario with also a worst case infrastructure scenario and that hasn't happened so this week we've been importing tons of power from the continent which is vital and it's what the system is designed to do the grid had said that you know there could be shortfalls if for some reason the interconnectors were not flowing if they couldn't get power from from europe when they needed it and and they have and there's also been some good news in France where the nuclear fleet has been, you know, le- in the summer, less than half of all of France's nuclear plants were 
online at all. And they've gotten that number up to a bit over two thirds now. It's trending in the right direction. It's still they're still really behind schedule with completing repairs, but uh, more. French nuclear plants have been online and able to send power to other parts of Europe uh, and the UK wh where it's been really needed. So that's how we've avoided the, the worst. We had that peak in power prices um, for 5 p.m. on Monday was this moment we were told that the spot price had reached this this record high. This kind of later stage into the week, are we still looking at very high prices for power? We are looking at very high prices for power. And it's important to realize like that these record high prices we're talking about are a very small portion of all electricity. These are half hour intraday prices. This is where the grid gets like, you know, the the last bit of power to make sure they have enough supply to meet demand. But it's not what, you know, it, it will affect bills ultimately, but not that much. Um, this isn't like how much you're paying for all of your electricity at 5 p.m. It, it's just this this very small piece of a much larger puzzle. Yeah, turn off your appliances in that uh, uh, early evening peak if well, possible. Well this, is, well, this is now what we're being finally told in the UK mm. is the campaign's finally being rolled out telling people to reduce consumption, something that's been done for, for months and months in, in yeah. other parts of Europe. I think it's going to be it's going to be rolled out next month, isn't it, as you say, but in, in, in Europe they've been doing it since I mean, they were or... talking about it. I think the first mention of the hilarious French expression energy sobriety was in June, maybe, and the campaign was actually rolled out, for, like full-on campaign rolled out from September. So this is a message that was being said very clearly um, in countries like France from, you know, early summer, and here it's taken until now to get people to do it. And it's something that's conversation. When I speak to my friends in, in France and other parts of Europe as well, that's a, a conversation that everyone's having about, oh, we'll make sure to switch off temperatures, things like that. Temperatures and offices being turned down. Uh, European buildings, for example, all of the European Commission buildings, they've turned down the thermostats so that they're not using as much power. So it's been interesting to see that conversation's finally shifting uh, and, and being had here in the UK as well. Yes, and it seems that broadly we've done uh, very little on that front. I wanted to change the subject slightly to some of the written about for the Bloomberg terminal today. That's uh, changes to, to regulations so that we get more um, wind power. Just explain what's what's happening with that. Yeah, so basically the regulator Ofgem has um, changed some rules to speed up investment in the electric grid, which is vital for actually getting the renewable power that wind farms generate to the people who need to use it. And the big challenge there is that the wind resources are really far away. They're out in the North Sea or they're up in Scotland. And to get them to London and the surrounding areas where most people in the country live, you need a lot of cables. And if you want to very quickly ramp up uh, wind power, it's relatively straightforward to build the wind farms, but it's much more complicated to build enough transmission. And if you don't, then it doesn't really matter how many wind farms you build because you won't be able to use all of that electricity. So this is um, a, a pretty important change and shows that the regulators are listening to government targets as they get bigger and that they're making changes to actually make those targets into reality. The goal, current goal here in the UK is 50 gigawatts of wind farms by 2030. Is that achievable? Um, technically, right. <laughs> it, it's, it's ambitious. I, I sense doubt from you, Will. Well, uh, you know, our colleagues at Bloomberg NEF who forecast these things don't think we're on track to get there. 
Um, it's going to be challenging. There is are going to be supply chain issues. There's regulation and permitting issues. Um, wh whether we get there in 2030 is going to be difficult. But even if we're a bit late, you know, the changes can be made to make this happen. And if you set a target, you know, yeah. e even if you're late, if you do get there, that's, you know, important for emissions and for helping reduce the impact on the climate. Better late than never, essentially. It's, um, okay, Will Mathis, our Renewable Energy Reporter, thank you very much for joining us to talk us through uh, all of the various aspects of that story. You and you've been looking ahead to some events coming up later. Yeah, in the House of Commons today, the international trade questions. Then Penny Morden, the leader of the Commons, will present the weekly business statement, uh, barring uh, any urgent questions. And then also be a backbench motion on prepayment fuel meters, carrying on with that subject. And importantly, a general debate on the West Coast mainline, which I think will pertain to the rotten performance, it is said by many people, of Avanti. The, I will uh, not let you have another round to you. Oh, that's, no, that's I wanted another one. One of your favourite subjects. I'll take that for another day. That is it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe or give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you usually listen. This episode was produced by James Wilcock and Marie Full Hussain. I'm Ewan Puss. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.